Welcome to episode five of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston. With me again are Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, how are you? It's been a stormy couple of days in the UK. Is everyone safe and well? All fine here in Brussels. It was stormy too. Uh, it's, it's indeed very stormy here, David. Uh, I think this is the third storm that is coming through the UK uh, in a week, which I read is the first time uh, since I think 2015, that there are more than two storms that have been named. Um, and of course, a few days later, they arrive in Europe. So uh, we already, already know what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in today's episode, uh, we're looking into electricity market design. It's a vital part of the energy transition and market design can really make or break a country's decarbonization effort. You can have all of the renewable energy you need, but without an effective market in which to sell this power, time, effort and investment would go wasted, leaving the energy transition to grind to a halt. Meanwhile, the last few months have seen huge increases in power prices across Europe. Is this a sign of a broken market or a symptom of something much bigger? Paired with more distributed energy resources, the rise of the prosumer and digitalization, the electricity market is having to adapt rapidly. To discuss these issues and others, we're delighted to be joined by George Vasconcelos. George is chairman of New Energy Solutions. He was the first chairman of the Portuguese Energy Regulatory Authority. He was founder and first chairman of the Council of European Energy Regulators, founder and member of the Executive Committee at the Florence School of Regulation, and a member of several national and international advisory committees on energy matters. George, your resume goes toe-to-toe with Jan's. Thank you so much for joining us today on What Matters. Well, thank you very much. That's my pleasure. And uh, congratulations for the new window that you have opened for this kind of debates. First things first, uh, as I just mentioned, electricity prices across Europe have risen sharply over the past sort of year. Can you explain why this has happened? Are we likely to see it again? And is the current market design to blame? Well, uh, as you know, there are different schools of thought about this uh, matter. We can say that the the basic reason is that uh, we have created in uh, Europe uh, a kind of dictatorship of the marginal molecule. This uh, shapes not only the gas market, but also the electricity market. So electricity prices, to some extent, are prisoners of this dictatorship. And um, this is a matter of fact. We have created those, this link between electricity and gas, and we have shaped the gas market in such a way that it should favor, encourage uh, this kind of uh, short-term transactions over long-term transactions. And, and so if we do not change the rules and if we do not change the way we treat our partners, especially in the gas market, because... Uh, in electricity, we have enough uh, endogenous resources and we have enough capital to build the necessary infrastructures and power plants and so on. But when it comes to fossil fuels and to natural gas in particular, we have the money to build the infrastructure, but we do not have enough resource. So it has to be imported. And uh, it is uh, purchased from different companies from different countries. And of course, when we talk about security of supply, but also when we talk about gas prices, this has to do something to do with um, 
the way we politically interact with those uh, suppliers. So if we do not change our attitude for those uh, suppliers and if we do not think about changing the rules of, uh, about our uh, gas and electricity markets, then probably we will see these kind of price levels uh, staying with us for a long time. I like what you said about the dictatorship of the gas molecule, because frankly, that's also my my observation that uh, even like now in the recent gas package again, um, basically the, the look stopped at gas. So it was all about gas on gas competition and this idea that now you replace the old fossil gas with the new, but not actually looking at the repercussions this would have on a heat pump competing or something like that. Um, and the commission is also intending to publish a, a communication on, on this whole situation about energy prices. How do we go forward in two weeks' time? And we've seen a first draft. Uh, and again, um, it seems that the old ideas come again, the old recipes. So now we need gas from Turkey or Azerbaijan or biogas, and then we will be fine. Um, and I, I don't see the step change like, okay, so now we are, we are moving up a gear. This is energy transition to zero. I don't see it. It was one of the failures of, uh, of the way the, the Green Deal has been uh, presented in, in, in relation with the energy transition that we have not uh, been, I'd say, uh, very accurate about the implications of the Green Deal upon the necessary evolution of the gas and electricity markets. And, and clearly, we are now paying a price for that. We clearly cannot reach uh, a zero carbon energy situation without gas for a long period of time because we are not, we do not have uh, today a solution, a cost-effective solution for seasonal storage. So we may increase the amount of uh, intermittent renewable generation because we still have enough uh, resource available and space available to build the uh, PV power plants and the wind power plants. The development in the past has been really very impressive. I mean, we saw recently, uh, maybe because of this uh, of this. Uh, uh, storms that are uh, hitting the UK, but uh, that uh, more than than fifty percent, I think, of electricity in Germany was generated from uh, wind, uh, which is really amazing. But we don't have, unfortunately, a practical way of storing this uh, energy, this wind energy that we have today, yesterday, and to keep it for the summer when there is no wind and uh, during the night there is no sun. So uh, if we don't have a practical solution for that problem, we need gas uh, for sure for for some years. The question is which place we want the gas-fired power plants to play in this transition and how should they be remunerated? Because basically what we are telling the owners of those power plants is somehow ambiguous uh, Thing. We are telling them, we need you, so we want you to stay. Please don't uh, shut down. And uh, at the same time, you know, we want to get rid of you as soon as possible. So don't expect to stay with us until the end of your lifetime. And this is something that contradicts um, 
the basic assumptions of a normal market where the normal investors are able to recover their investments if they are smart over a, and competitive over uh, a certain uh, amount of time. And now here we are suggesting that there is a shorter period of time for those investments to be recovered, but we are not explicit about this period. I have I have two follow-up questions, if I may. Um, I mean, you, you said that very clearly um, to meet the climate goals at some point, fossil gas generation will have to be replaced with, with something else. Uh, and so my first question to you would be, what do you think could be that something else? You know, is it hydrogen? Is it is it some other form of dispatchable power generation? And then the second question is, as a former regulator, you know, how do we design the regulatory framework in such a way, in energy markets in such a way, that they actually reward companies that invest in these technologies rather than just investing in more fossil generation? How do we get that transition right, you know, recognizing that in only 13 years' time, I think the goal is at European level, but also at national level in many member states, to get to zero emissions for the power sector. Those are the two questions I would like to ask you, George. I think nobody knows exactly how we are going to build this and where we will be um, uh, in terms of the share uh, shares of different technologies in 2035. I don't know, frankly. What I see is, is a, a need to, to allow for new kinds of uh, energy resource management being done now, optimizing at, namely at local level, what can be optimized, uh, where demand can have a much more active role and can be combined with local generation. So we could allow for more freedom at this level. And then let's see what comes out uh, from these experiments. Maybe there will be a reduction of total energy demand, which will be uh, already a very important step in the direction of solving all our problems. Um, because we, we just don't want to cut uh, uh, CO2 emissions. We want also to uh, to be responsible and to use all resources in a responsible way. So this is something that is relatively cheap in terms of investment, but requires uh, regulatory innovation. And uh, that's, that's your point. So yes, we need to change uh, rules, not only European rules. I think that these have been changed already and and have been very uh, important also to speed up uh, certain processes. If I think, for instance, about uh, storage or about uh, uh, self-generation, clearly there are uh, guidelines coming from Brussels that then uh, translate into national uh, changes, sometimes uh, remarkable ones, but we need more from that. We need more also at the national level, uh, but we need also more at the local level. And the local uh, authorities and municipalities or associations of municipalities, they must have not only the formal power to do things and to decide things about energy management, but also to have the, the ability to do that, the, the capacity to do that. And I think that we have a serious problem of capacity building at local level in most of the cities in our uh, member states in the European Union. But this will not be enough. I think this is uh, something, that, a kind of, uh, of no-regret policy that should be adopted immediately. 
by doing so, by supporting decentralization, we, we are doing also something very important because we are uh, studying solutions that can be very helpful, not only in the developed world, but also in developing countries. But we need, we need to invest on big uh, projects. It can be hydrogen, it can be storage, uh, large scale, it can be centralized or decentralized, but clearly we need large amounts of, of uh, storage. We know that storage can help a lot. There was a very nice report uh, published, I think, last year by an RL, where you can see the, the, the potential, uh, the multi-potential of storage. It, it can be hydrogen that will help us going the last mile. Once we have, uh, let's say, used all the potential that we have in terms of energy efficiency, what we need, and you are perfectly right, is a, is a more open regulatory environment, open to innovation and open to new types of investment also, for instance. I can give you uh, two examples, one from the country I know best, where if you build a new house, and the land where you are going to build a new house is served by a public natural gas network, you are obliged by law to have a connection to that grid, even if you don't want to use gas in your home, which is completely contradictory with our goals in terms of investment. Of course, it's a small investment. It's just maybe three meters of a pipe, but it's so stupid and it's so contradictory with our goal that it should be abolished. Another point is uh, is storage, because in some countries we know that the regulatory framework is still confusing, to say the least. And this is very important, not only for ther- for uh, electrical storage, for the batteries, but also for thermal storage. And it has a huge potential. And it also uh, it is an interesting example, because it shows that uh, when we talk about energy integration, it's something very, very concrete and extremely important to get the cost-effective decarbonization. But Jorge, why has there not been much more progress on all this flexibility and demand? It seems we always say, oh yeah, that's important, but somehow it doesn't really come through. And I recall from the podcast we had with Greg Jackson from Octopus, he just, he gave me the impression, he his impression was of the energy sector, it's like, very not prone to innovation and all other logistical chains uh, were improved with digital solutions. But in the energy sector, it seems so hard to penetrate. So I don't want to blame you because you are an, an energy regulator, but can you understand this argument that he made? Well, for sure, most regulators are still are afraid of, of energy digitalization. Okay, and uh, th- this is true, uh, and they do not understand the disruptive uh, impact of digitalization in our society, in our economy. They are afraid, and they don't want to see this really happening uh, massively in uh, in the energy sector. And digitalization is a uh, kind of a precondition for many things to happen in the realm of uh, flexibility. The other, so this is an obstacle. This is a kind of uh, fear that prevents uh, uh, regulators from being more proactive in supporting energy digitalization. Of course, the incumbent utilities have no interest on promoting this kind of uh, energy digitalization because this creates new opportunities for other actors reducing their market share. But uh, 
there is another obstacle, if you want, another uh, epistemological obstacle to uh, the uh, development of flexibility, which is, again, the market model. Because uh, we have hard, so, so many people like us, uh, have worked so hard to build this integrated European electricity market that people are afraid of losing it somehow. Uh, anything that suggests that there might be an evolution towards more decentralization is uh, also, again, uh, uh, seen as a threat to this uh, model. I am not so uh, scared by that. I think perfectly and that, that we, we could and we should live in a world where there is a better balance between uh, the European integrated market and decentralization. But we must understand that many people in industry and in, in the regulatory world, they are very concerned about this. And they have, they have tried for many years to, uh, to avoid or at least to slow down this process of decentralization, keeping a, a centralized model for everything. So, for instance, if you want to do uh, self-generation, uh, okay, but it must go into the market. You want to do uh, electric mobility, okay, but it must go into the European market. You, these are local realities, okay? If you, if you do a, a small energy community we, and if you are expanding electric mobility in your town, what we are doing is creating or solving congestion problems at the local level, which have nothing to do with, uh, with the congestion problems in another city 300 kilometers away from my city. So there is no reason why we should centralize the solution of those problems, which are local by definition. Of course, the more we electrify the mobility, the more we electrify heating through the heat pumps, the more this will become relevant and the more those uh, regional uh, local realities will be decoupled because we have different climates, we have different cultural uh, attitudes and so on and so forth. So it makes sense from a, a political point of view, from a cultural point of view, from an economic point of view to accept and to promote this kind of decentralization. This does not mean killing the internal market. This means creating a, a new relationship between the agents at the local level and the European market. Yeah. George, I wondered, we, we, you touched on the role of digitalization a bit earlier there, and you, you saw that you said the regulators and the, and the operators are a bit more uh, hesitant in, in taking for that forward. But do you see a future where digitalization is an essential part of that? Do you see digitalization as making these cha- uh, helping to make these changes a bit better? Should the market be a lot more accepting of digital products? Um, do you maybe one day envisage uh, uh, artificial intelligence determining price signals and things like that, and and blockchain backed energy trading? Is that uh, is that where eventually we're going to get to? Well, uh, first of all, uh, digitalization is uh, ine- inevitable. It, it is there. It, it is uh, so powerful that it uh, invades all areas. It's even invaded some of the more um, personal areas uh, so quickly that I see no reason why it should not invade the energy uh, industry and the electricity industry in particular. So the question is not or not anymore whether energy digitalization will happen, but uh, when it will happen and what it will mean. And um, 
we see a certain acceleration of uh, energy digitalization. And this is uh, something inevitable because it's not just the owners of the networks who can digitalize. There are so many people who are already digitalized. There are so companies who offer very cheap systems uh, who, which allow you to, to control uh, your uh, electrical appliances remotely in your home. I mean, I am doing this for more than 10 years now, and I don't have a smart meter installed by my local distribution company. I also didn't need that. It was a pity because he was missing some information that uh, he might collect from my uh, electricity use, but that was not my problem. So there, there are many things that people can do and are already doing, uh, maybe a small scale, with digitalization and uh, artificial intelligence and all the kinds of uh, means that we have today to collect, to analyze large amounts of data and to try to extract some uh, useful information from this data, they will they are being applied in many sectors and they can be applied also in the electricity sector. Some of them are already being applied, much more will be applied. So my answer is yes, I see uh, clearly uh, a growing potential for energy digitalization, both in terms of new uh, hardware and also uh, new uh, software solutions. The other, the other part of your question about, about blockchain is interesting because I think it also shows the limits of uh, digitalization. And some years ago, there was a kind of a hype about the blockchain and uh, in the electricity system. And why this has not materialized? Uh, well, there are good reasons for that. And we, we should also be aware when, when assessing the potential of some technologies, in particular digitalization for uh, the electricity transition, the energy transition, we should be aware of the, not only about the costs, but about the the technical implications of some uh, options, okay? And the, the problem with, for instance, with the blockchain uh, solution is that one of the benefits of blockchain is the fact that uh, your transactions are uh, secret, that you don't need to communicate with third parties. Now, if you are buying and selling shares in the stock exchange and you can replace the stock exchange with this kind of transaction, you don't pay the fees, the, end, the outcome is exactly the same, so you are happy because nobody knows that you have sold those uh, shares that you have inherited from your grandfather and uh, uh, you didn't pay the fees to the stock exchange or to the bank. So it's wonderful. It works. Win-win. No problem. But in electricity systems, it's different because those transactions must always be checked by someone, someone being the, the system operator. Uh, the, the entity responsible for guaranteeing the reliability of the system always. And uh, we know that if we allowed for all kinds of transactions, there might be some problems at some points in time because the infrastructure the network is not able to support all kinds of transactions all the time. So there may be a need to reschedule some of those transactions and this may lead to uh, not accepting some transactions or limiting the scope of some transactions at uh, uh, certain points in time. 
So someone must get access to this information. And this is a contradiction between the need for permanent control of the reliability of the electrical system and the integrity of the electrical system, which is a common good, and the, uh, a mechanism that allows transactions to take place without any kind of centralization, any, without sharing this information. So this is, this is contradictory. It cannot work. Not because the technologies are not good, they are good for some purposes, but not for uh, electricity networks. So, you see, uh, I am a fan of energy digitalization, a supporter of digitalization, but I try also to be realistic and not to just import into the electricity industry everything that exists in the outside world, in the hardware or in the software world. George, at the beginning of the um, podcast, we talked about electricity markets, and you said we should later talk about the potential to you know, maybe change the current market design, uh, which you said is basically based on this idea that we uh, follow the approach to so-called marginal pricing, where the most expensive unit uh, that generates electricity uh, sets the, uh, the price that all of the generators receive. Uh, there have been calls um, from you know, some governments, but also from a number of um, of energy organizations saying that we should move away from marginal pricing and that we should introduce something else. For example, pay as bid. So you would pay everybody the amount that they bid in the energy market with the expectation of that lowering costs or just pay an average um, uh, price uh, to everybody uh, based on the average bid that's been submitted. W what do you make of calls for market reform along those lines. Are they sensible? Uh, are there better ways of doing things? Or is the approach that we currently use uh, the best one to keep? As I like to say, markets are always social constructions and uh, electricity markets are also social constructions. They serve a certain purpose that society decides to uh, introduce at a certain uh, stage. Uh, for many years, we thought that electricity should be a natural monopoly, and uh, we had natural monopolies. And then we decided that uh, electricity needed not be a, a natural monopoly, and we decided to introduce competition. And at that time, when this happened, we were thinking about uh, our conventional models of large power plants, uh, and basically uh, gas-fired power plants coming into the system, and competing with uh, existing power plants. And by the way, uh, at that time, gas prices, as you, as you remember, in the US were about, uh, I think, seven, uh, uh, seven, eight euros per megawatt hour during the, the 1990s. So when liberalization happened, we had plenty of gas, very cheap gas. That, that, that price level is a dream nowadays that we have, we are paying 70, 70, uh, euros per megawatt hour for natural gas in Europe. We had uh, plenty of, uh, of money to invest on those uh, power plants, and this happened. If you look at the statistics and you see how much was built uh, in Europe uh, until uh, 2004 or five, you see a huge uh, investment on combined cycle power plants. So the market model that was introduced was appropriate for that development model of competition between large players. 
but if we if we if you plot uh, the <coughs> the demand, the electricity demand in uh, in Europe. And the, the new uh, or the, the net installed capacity in, in Europe during the same period. What you see is, uh, is very interesting because between 1990 and uh, 2004, more or less, the two curves go parallel as you expected in the old model. So demand increased and generation capacity increased proportionally, almost so two parallel lines. But then starts uh, the big um, disconnect between demand and uh, investment. What we see is that demand remained almost flat with some fluctuations because we had the financial crisis and other crises, but more or less it is it is flat. While uh, investment, new capacity increased as if nothing had changed. And uh, why is this? Well, because these new investments are mainly subsidized investments, one way or the other, uh, renewable generation, not, not anymore the, the private uh, combined cycle power plants, but these are mainly wind and solar power plants, which have a guaranteed price. So, uh, and this was 50, started 15 years ago. So we will have 15 years of this process going on, we must recognize that uh, we have a lot of uh, those uh, subsidized, I mean, you can call it feed-in tariff or market premium or contracts for difference, but the end result is the same. The investor has a guarantee that this investment will be paid one way or the other. And this was already a very substantial change to the uh, assumptions of our market model. And this should have been addressed uh, already before, in, in my view. Um, so to answer your question, I, I think that uh, not only looking into the future, to the, to the goals that we have for 2030 and 2050, but already looking to the present, looking to what we have done over the, the last 15, 20 years, the, the changes that we have in the basic assumptions that led us to build the electricity market that we have today recommend that we review this market model. Um, now, we have heard recently many proposals, and I guess that many of those proposals are a kind of quick reaction to uh, this price spikes and people are some people are desperate to find a convenient solution to uh, lower prices or at least to provide lower electricity to some kinds of consumers and maybe this is not the, the right way to uh, approach this discussion maybe we should uh, systematically review uh, what has changed in the uh, assumptions that we had uh, 30 years ago uh, what are our goals now uh, as a society for 2050 and 2030? And then we can discuss the pros and cons of different models. And I am uh, open to different uh, new market designs. Uh, what I say, is, uh, as I said already before, is that I believe we should give more room for experiments at the local level. We need more diversity at the local level, combining uh, 
competition with cooperation mechanisms, uh, different mechanisms for integrating the local with the centralized, different ways of even uh, looking at our products, the megawatt hours and the, the, the network capacities being provided, and then finding new, uh, more efficient ways, fair ways of pricing the use of the infrastructures and, and then the, the paying for the investment on the expansion of those infrastructures. That's uh, how I see this um, <coughs> this debate in the electricity sector. Of course, in the gas market, we had a different story. And this brings us back to the beginning of our talk. Um, in the gas sector, when liberalizations, well, first of all, as you all know, uh, gas liberalization started uh, at least two years later than electricity liberalization because there was a very strong reaction from the gas industry, even stronger than the, of the electricity industry. At that time, uh, gas supply was completely dominated by long-term take-or-pay contracts in Europe with very restrictive uh, clauses. And so it's understandable that uh, from the political point of view, it was considered necessary and useful not only to restrict most of those um, clauses, uh, restrictive clauses in the contracts, but also to limit the scope for long-term contracts and to create uh, liquid uh, spot markets for gas. Well, the idea was, or one of the ideas was that because there are many suppliers in the North Sea, uh, in Russia, in North Africa, and then LNG, we can uh, uh, get the best of the two worlds. And we can uh, uh, get lower prices because if we create an efficient spot market, then we can increase competition between these different suppliers and the European consumers will benefit. Well, this was already a very risky game because uh, Europe is not the United States. We, have, we do not have the same kind of self-sufficiency in natural gas that the United States have and have developed. And we basically also decided not to have this because we decided not to go for shale gas, for instance. So that's a completely different situation. which should have led to a different kind of relationship with the gas suppliers. And what we did was not very wise. I mean, just imposing this model and then telling our supplier that they should comply with our model and they should come here and sell um, was not very smart. It would have been better probably to involve those suppliers uh, in the discussions about the, the, the gas market design and the creation of appropriate uh, contractual products for gas. But we failed to do that and now we suffer the consequences of this model that we have been um, using. Um, apparently nobody is uh, violating the rules of this market, but they are just using their powers probably in a legitimate way. So if this is the, the situation, if DigiComp has no particular concerns about the way companies are behaving, then we should uh, again think about changing the rules and uh, uh, asking ourselves 
what uh, should be the purpose for a gas market in Europe leading us to 2050. Thank you, George. That's really interesting. Uh, just finally, then, we ask each of our guests uh, to look into their crystal ball uh, to see what they think the energy will, landscape will look like in uh, 10 or 20 years' time. So, George, uh, what does your crystal ball look like? <laughs> well, uh, I already confessed my ignorance <laughs> during the discussion. Uh, but what, what I see is very strongly is, is this digitalization uh, taking place and changing not only the way we use uh, energy, but also the, our understanding about energy and how energy relates with the environment and how energy relates with our lives and our culture. Uh, you know, with liberalization, when we abolished the natural monopolies, we considered uh, electricity and natural gas as commodities. So we commoditized uh, electricity. I think that today there is a, a wish of many people to, uh, and thanks to, to the new possibilities given by digitalization, to communitize energy and to transform it not in a standard uh, commodity, but uh, as a, a different kind of product, which has not only a, a price tag, but also a kind of a social capital involved. And this, of course, together with uh, the natural capital that we know uh, must be associated with uh, all kinds of energy use. Thank you very much. Uh, finally, then, just as before we go uh, this week, uh, let's quickly go around and see what caught my eye uh, this week. Michaela, uh, what sort of things caught your eye this week? What caught my eye made me very sad for the country I know best, as you just said earlier. Um, I saw two contributions, one of the new party leader of the now opposition party talking about how renewables at the moment are still too expensive. And then another economist uh, developing a theory of a green paradox that if we now pull out of fossil fuel use, then those people that produce fossil fuels will only accelerate and dig it out even more and that therefore this cannot fly. A renamed professor, and you wonder how many of those podcasts we would need. <laughs> to bring. No, but seriously, I'm not joking. It's actually quite sad. These were two respected people as contribution into the debate uh, over the weekend in Germany in 2021. Crazy. Uh, Jan, what about you? What caught your eye this week? Well, I, I saw some um, pretty negative coverage as well. Um, this, in this case, it was about electrification um, be, being ever so much more expensive because of rising electricity prices. My direct thought was, well, but gas prices have gone up a lot more than electricity prices. Uh, and and what really matters is the relationship between the two, you know, whether electrification is... Um, economically more sensible than the other, than the other depends on the um, on the ratio, not so much on by how much it has gone up. So I've calculated my own figures, and turns out that um, in many countries it now seems to be the case that electrification of heating is uh, is is more advantageous because gas prices have gone up more than electricity prices. So um, I produced some analysis, and it's on the right website, which makes sense because you showed these growth rates for the heat pumps, no? Like this uh, spectacular growth rates and heat pumps in the French market, 50%. Uh, something must have happened there for them to 
to speed up so much? Well, I think this is this is probably not a direct result of the recent increase. Uh, we're probably going to see more of that in 2022. But uh, keep your eyes open. There's a there's a guest um, post for Carbon Brief I'm writing right now on this subject. Keep an eye out. Absolutely, we'll keep an eye out for that and uh, share it where we can. Uh, George, what caught your eye this week? Well, several news about cyber attacks, uh, banks. Um, communication companies, uh, Wi-Fi and so on. And um, uh, I was wondering uh, when we will have uh, a first very serious problem in the energy sector uh, in Europe and whether we are prepared to handle that. What, what are we doing uh, to, to prevent this kind of uh, scaring attacks? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of uh, stories on cybersecurity. I, I know I know of a story on a it was a wind farm, I think in America, um, where the a hacker had got into the servers that were being used in a wind turbine, and the security kind of team at the the wind farm operator were like, "Well, they're not really hurting our production of the wind turbine of generation, and they're actually updating the software for us." So. We're not going to strengthen our. We're not really going to need to strengthen our security. We don't need to really do anything. But you know that was a very mild case, and of course, I think cybersecurity itself is very um, a, a really interesting topic. And as you say, I think something could happen very soon, uh, very serious uh, with that. Um, absolutely. Uh, and just finally, then, I, well, the kind of three slightly negative uh, uh, things that caught your eyes this week. So I, I'm going to bring a, I'm going to bring a positive uh, I'm going to bring a positive story to the table. Uh, I saw uh, a post by the Gemini Offshore Wind Project in the Netherlands, um, a, a 600 megawatt project uh, off the coast there, uh, and they are working on oyster reef restoration um, at the project. And I think it's just a really uh, interesting and novel way of using wind projects to help the ecology of the area uh, and you know how wind and how renewables projects can also um, not just generate clean electricity but also be uh, a positive um, for the local environment and the and the local economy as well so that's my i'm gonna i'm gonna finish on a high on a positive note uh, for that week with the oysters uh, with, with some oysters uh, we should all maybe we'll all go for, uh, have oysters for lunch one day uh, that's all we have time for today my thanks to george jan and michaela if you have any thoughts or questions about anything you've heard on today's podcast or ideas for future episodes you can reach us on our twitter accounts i'm on at dave w underscore foresight uh, michaela i'm on at citizen sane one Jan. i'm on jan rosenau that's all and george if our listeners wish to contact you how can they do that Oh, please email me at jvasconcelos uh, at us.eu. Perfect. Uh, you can also tweet the show at whatmatterspod or email the show at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you all again very soon. Bye.